Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are very honored to have with us Rabbi Mordechai Becher. Rabbi Becher is a noted international lecturer and author. Rabbi Becher received rabbinic ordination from the chief rabbinate in Israel, as well as from the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. Rabbi Becher also earned an MA in medieval Jewish history from the Bernard Revel Graduate School in numerous institutions, both in Israel and abroad, including Neve Yerushalayim, Darche Bina, or Sameach, and has also served as a senior lecturer at Gateways. Rebecher has also authored a number of books, Gateway to Judaism, The What, How, and Why of Jewish Life, After the Return, A Practical Halachic Guide for the Newly Observant, Soul Food, A Summary of the Laws of Kosher Food, and explanations of the reasons behind it. Currently, Rabbi Becher is a senior lecturer in Jewish history and philosophy at Yeshiva University. And today we'll be covering and discussing a fascinating topic, the Aleppo Codex. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be very, very informative for our viewers and listeners. Again, Rabbi Becher, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just to begin, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the Aleppo Codex. Uh, it's actually a good question. I'm not exactly sure, uh, but I would say uh, two things. Uh, number one, I had the opportunity when once when I was visiting England to go to Cambridge University and to see the Cairo Geniza, where uh, very generously we were given an entire day um, and the curator and uh, various researchers there at the um, at the uh, uh, the Geniza Research Unit, and it was a fascinating experience uh, to see autograph copies of the Mishnah Torah of Maimonides, uh, to see a letter of Yehuda Halevi in his own handwriting, to see these type of things. Just really. Uh, seized the uh, imagination and uh, really inspired me. So that was, I think, one thing that uh, that, that uh, made me interested, uh, created some more interest in these manuscripts. In addition, I was, I was doing my uh, master's in medieval Jewish history, and uh, the Aleppo Codex was referred to in one of my classes, which was the On the Jews of Islam by Professor Daniel Tzadik. I took, I think, four courses with him about the Jews of Islam, and during our study of the Jews of Syria, uh, we had some extensive discussion about the Aleppo Codex. And uh, so I, I guess those are some of the uh, features uh, or some incidents that uh, I guess have uh, made me interested in this subject. What exactly is the Aleppo Codex and what does it contain? Okay, so uh, as you know, the technology of the Torah scroll has not changed for 3,000 or so years. It's a scroll. Um, the Romans came up with an idea of instead of using a scroll, which, of course, as anyone who's been in shul knows, when it's rolled to the wrong place, is somewhat of a nightmare. You have to roll it back and forth, you know, et cetera. Chiropractors are happy with it, but no one else. So the Romans came up with the idea of a notebook, um, uh, in other words, folding parchment in half, binding it together into leaves or pages, 
and um, sometimes using uh, papyrus, sometimes using um, uh, parchment. And uh, they created the book or a codex, which became in common use by around the fourth century. Um, so the um, the Jews, so that's what a codex is. A codex basically is a is a book um, which contains a specific type of text. Now the Aleppo Codex, it it got the name Aleppo Codex much later in its history. Um, really, it was written by a group, uh, primarily the Ben Aaron family in Tiberias uh, in the uh, in the ninth century, and um, uh, later on through its incredibly fascinating history, was transported to Aleppo in Syria, in Hebrew called Halav, or in Arabic Halav, um, or in Hebrew Aram Soba, um, and in the Syrian pronunciation. And uh, it was there for a long time, which I guess we'll probably discuss at some point. And um, uh, so it became known as the Keter Aram Soba, or the crown of Aram Soba, Taj in Arabic, and basically it's a Tanakh, meaning it's the Torah, five books of the Torah, the entire 24 books of the Torah, prophets and writings, but it's more than that, because it was an attempt to preserve the oral traditions of the written text. What is an oral tradition of a written text? Well, you have the written text of the Torah, as anyone who's seen a Torah scroll, there's no punctuation, uh, there are no vowels, um, I mean, there are some of the Hebrew letters, but there's no vowel sounds. So is the is the word pronounced halav or chalev, chalav meaning milk, chalev meaning fat. Um, is it year er he will see, year er he will be seen, year ah he will fear, year ah he will show. Right. So you need to have an oral tradition, meaning you need to hear someone pronounce it in order to know how to read it. And in terms of punctuation, not even sentence divisions. So the punctuation is supplied by what we call Tame Hamikra, the way we sing it. Um, and the singing divides up phrases, puts emphasis on certain words, combines words, divides words, creates the sentences, and so on and so forth. But all that, until the time of the Aleppo Codex, that period was preserved in an oral fashion. You'd have to hear it from someone who heard it from someone, you'd teach it to someone. So this group of Jews known as the Masoretes, Masora, Masora means tradition, as in Fiddler on the Roof, tradition, Masora. So there is an attempt to uh, to preserve all of that in, in written form with vowelization of the Hebrew words that we call today nekudot. Not only nekudot means dots, but it's it's really dots and dashes, etc. And of course, with the Tame Hamikra, Ashkenazim called trop, uh, which are also the cantillation notes that they put all of that into uh, a, a text of the Tanakh um, and they added to it also um, notes uh, about uh, spelling of words, which is different spelling in different manuscripts. They noted that they noted sometimes how often a word appears. They noted a word that appears only once in the entire text. They made many, many notes uh, a lengthy version, uh, Masora Magna, the great Masora, a smaller version, the Masora Parva, that does not mean anything to do with meat and milk. That's Latin for short or small. So, and that is really what was put in. That's the Aleppo Codex. That's what it is. 
pretty and, much. And as, as you mentioned, the, the Ben Asher, this was a family. This was Ben a, Asher, yes, not Ben Asher. Sorry, Ben Asher. Yeah. The, the, these these were a group of scholars during which period? This is, this parallels the Gaonic period. Um, so, um, ah, it's towards the end of the Gaonic period. The Gaonic period usually is considered to end around the beginning of the 10th century, uh, or begin, uh, mid-11th century, let's say 1035 10, uh, is, is the death of the last of the Gaonim. So we're talking about in the 10th century, 9th and 10th century, it was towards the end of the Gaonic era. era. So what happened is, is that Tiberius, which is a city on the western shore of the Kinneret, as you know, one of the four holy cities of the land of Israel, founded by Herod Antipas, so a name for the emperor Tiberius. So it became a uh, a center of Jewish study already in the second, third century. A lot of the Mishnah was compiled there. Um, the Jerusalem Talmud was edited in Tiberius 200 years later. Um, uh, and Saladin eventually put an end to crusader power there. Um, but but the Jewish community flourished in Tiberius. And it was a center. And now there, there are, it was like a perfect storm situation. First of all, um, Muslim conquest around the Middle East, there was a rise of Arabic and concurrently a decline in the use of Hebrew. So this group of scholars, family, Ben Asher family and others, wanted to preserve the authentic Hebrew script, etc. Also, the Muslims imported papermaking technology from China, which made it possible technically to produce some really nice works. Uh, like the Codex. Also, there was a rise of Karite influence. Now, the Karites were a group of Jews, began around the, in the 10th century, who who believed only in the written law, not in the oral tradition. On the positive side, uh, that meant that they had tremendous respect and veneration of the text of the Torah. So if you had these people who... So, so that was also somewhat uh, an influence... Um, also, but bec- so uh, an influence on the set in the sense that there was a great interest in the biblical text. On the other hand, as opposed to the Karaites, there was now an impetus to preserve and reinforce the Masora or the oral tradition. So, uh, so the Karaites was type of like a an influence on the positive and the negative side. The positive side is the veneration of the text. So we're competing with them in venerating. Oh, yeah, we'll do it better, right? But on the other hand, there was the Karite rejection of the oral tradition. So in our text, we're going to put in the oral tradition. So there was that. And it was also a scholarly, political, uh, economic, and cultural capital of Israel almost at the time. So the the Masoretes really tried to do a few things. First of all, as I said, the vocalization of the text, meaning mikud, the cantillation, the way you sing it, which is, of course, as I said, the punctuation, which we call ta'ame hamikra, and the textual accuracy, variations, defective or plane spelling. You know, there are words in Hebrew you could say, just random example, omer. He said, aleph vav memresh, would read omer. That's a plane spelling, a full spelling. Or you could write it as aleph memresh, and you could still read it omer. Right, put a dot on the top. That's called a defective spelling. Right, uh, so they wanted to record all of these things. And the Balai Masora, um, they worked for a, probably about six generations. When exactly they started, it's unclear. But they produced the the culmination of it all, 
was the uh, 24 books of the Torah um, in the form of the um, the Aleppo Codex. One of the scribes' name was uh, Shlomo ben Buya'a, who actually did the writing, which is beautiful script. Um, the uh, that probably the head of the the person in charge of the venture was a Rav Aaron ben Asher of the ben Asher family, and uh, they completed this codex. Um, and by the way, we know uh, these because there was a colophon. Colophon is a basically a dedication page. Uh, if you find the colophon, usually at the end, sometimes at the beginning, um, then you've got it made. It'll give you the author, it'll tell you the scribe, give you the the the, the place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was the those were the the Masserites. Um, going back to the the Karaites, um, the Karaites, as you mentioned, were very interested in the Aleppo Codex, and if I remember correctly from my reading, that the Codex was initially housed in a Karite synagogue, perhaps I think it was in Cairo, if I'm not mistaken. So why were they that interested in the Aleppo Codex if the Aleppo Codex represented the oral tradition on the written law? Good question. So the yes, the cantillation and the vowelization uh, represented the, uh, the oral law, that is true. But the text, which was so carefully written, so beautifully written and so carefully preserved with every variation and so on and so forth. That was of great interest to the Karaites. They are interested in the text of the Torah. They consider it to be holy. Um, the only thing that is holy is the text of the of the Torah. Um, uh, in addition to which, now they do make deductions from the text. They used a method called kias, um, which is Arabic, roughly translates into Hebrew as hekesh meaning logical comparisons, etc., which means if you are using, they did use deductive logic, they did use um, their minds and svara, so that means it was important for them to have an accurate text, Um, uh, especially since that's all they had was the text. So this was important to them. And actually, yes, a Karite, wealthy Karite family did buy um, the the Aleppo Codex and brought it to Jerusalem initially, which is a part of its history. It moved from uh, from uh, Tiberias to Jerusalem, and actually was in the possession of the Karaites. But type of interestingly, these Karaites did allow rabbinic rabbinite scholars, meaning us, uh, people who are, who are believed in the oral Torah, um, to look at it and to uh, investigate it. Because so it was really interesting because the Aleppo Codex is therefore uh, a type of a unique book in the sense that it is. Uh, of great value to two completely opposing camps, but for similar reasons. So the, the Rabbinites were interested in this because of the preservation of the of the oral traditions of the written law, but also because we hold the text to be holy, as you know, right? Uh, anyone who's a Balkora and makes a mistake gets shouted at by 50 people in public in the, in the shul because... what. He said, ah, instead of, ooh, that's right. One letter's missing, that's it. So it's of great interest to us, but we are also interested in it in the sense of the oral uh, part of it, uh, et cetera. And the Karaites, also interested because of the sanctity of the text and the accuracy um, on the, of the preservation job that we've done here. What happened to the Codex, to the Lepa Codex, during the First Crusade? 
so it is believed that it was um the uh in 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 um basically what happens is the um the the, the codex is intact and in Yerushalayim by the 10th century in the 11th century 1071 Jerusalem was attacked by the Turkish Seljuks who seized control from the Shiite Fatimids okay so um again Sunni uh Turks and the 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 uh, uh capturing Jerusalem from the Shiite Fatimids Sunni and Shiites being the two two of the uh the major Muslim sects the Shiites being in the minority um the, then the Fatimids retake Jerusalem. Then eventually, 1099, the Crusaders captured Jerusalem. 1096 is the beginning of the First Crusade. We know a very tragic time for the Jewish people, especially in the Rhineland. Um, but the the Crusaders were always short of cash. Is this huge army to support, and they're extended, and uh, the supply chain. We we have heard of issues like that. Supply chain was an issue back then as well, uh, probably worse. So the Crusaders, uh, like most thugs, resorted to uh, many ways to make money, the, uh, kidnapping people, uh, some Crusader castles, as you know, um, in Israel, amazingly have graves in them of famous biblical characters, right? Because because now they could charge entrance. So they build a castle. They say, oh, wow, we found the grave of Noah. I think it's in, in Sfat. Obviously not the grave of Noah. No one has a clue where he's buried, but, but you can charge entry fees now, right? And so they make money. So they, it is believed that the crown, the the, the Keter, um, the, uh, the, this, this codex was taken either by the Celtics, more likely by the Crusaders, and held for ransom. It was held for ransom. So it was in Jerusalem, in the possession of some Karaites. Uh, it was uh, redeemed for uh, for ransom. There is a uh, there is a letter we have in the Cairo Geniza, which talks of um, that uh, people who are redeemed from the Franks, the Franks referring to the Crusaders from France. Um, some are in danger of dying from want of food and clothing and exhaustion. Others remain in captivity. Um, uh, all this, in addition to the money. Now, this is from Cairo community writing this, who say that in the money that we, so we sent money to help the Jews who were starving to redeem Jews from captivity. And at the end, there's a few lines that says this, all this in addition to the money that was borrowed and spent in order to buy back 230 Bible codices, a hundred other volumes, eight Torah scrolls. So you see the Cairo community, which was fairly affluent, uh, spent money ransoming stuff, uh, material from the crusade. So it appears that the Cairo community um, was able to ransom the, um, this is, by the way, from Gotian uh, in Hayishu of Be'eret Yisrael from his, one of his books about the Cairo Geniza. And uh, so there, it was ransomed by the Jews of Fostat. Fostat was the, uh, a suburb of Cairo where the Rambam lived, um, most famously. And in the early 12th century, it was uh, it was uh, redeemed by them. So, so now now it's in Cairo and um, it's available for the Rambam, Maimonides, to inspect. Um, did did the Rambam validate? the accuracy of the Lepo Codex, and what are the implications of that ruling? Well, type of interesting, the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah, Hilchus Sefer Torah, in the 8.4, uh, 
the Rambam discusses this, and he says, first of all, he says, I've seen a lot of mistakes, right? shibush gadol, I saw a lot of mistakes in the books. Now, he doesn't, he, he's, he, he is, uh, he, here he's referring to mistakes more, not so much in the spelling or in the words, not at all. He talks about the, what's called petuchot and stumot, meaning the uh, open chapters where a, a chapter of the Torah ends uh, with a, a space at the end of the line, petucha open, stumot, where the chapter ends at a space in the middle of a line. And he says, we've got a lot of mistakes in the way we do that. Uh, in addition, the amount of lines used in writing things, specifically things like the shira, the song, which is written in a very specific way in the Torah, like the Song of the Red Sea, shiras hayam, shiras ha'azinu, um, shiras ha'be'er. And he says, um, and he says this, I'll just read what he says. I'm going to tell you how to write the parashiot stumot and ptuchot. I want to tell you how to write the the open and, and closed paragraphs. I'm going to also tell you how to write exactly the format of the songs. And he says, I'm basing it, Sefer Shesamachnu Alav, the book upon which we have relied, Bidvarim Elu in all these things, who has Sefer Hayadua the Mitzrayim, is the well-known book in Egypt, Shu Kolel Arba Esrim Vesfarim, Right, the which includes the twenty-four books of the Torah, prophets, and writings. Shehaya birushalayim kamashid that was in Jerusalem a number of years and has now come here to Cairo. And he says, Samachti, I relied on this and the Sefer Torah that I had written in Cairo. We don't have that Sefer Torah, but the Sefer Torah that I commanded to be written is based on this text. Now it is widely believed, based on fair amount of evidence that this is the uh, a reference to the Aleppo Codex, which had gone from Tiberius to Yerushalayim in the hands of Karaites, captured by the Crusaders, ransomed by the Jews of Fostat, seen by the Rambam, and indeed, who says, it's wonderful, we should rely on this, it is excellent. And we've moved to, to Egypt to uh, the suburb of Cairo, and now the codex gets to Aleppo. Ah, yes. How does it get, how does it get from, uh, why and how does it get from Egypt to now Aleppo, Syria? So Maimonides, who, aside from being a great Torah scholar, physician, leader of the Jewish, Ra'is al-Yahud, the head of the Jews of Cairo, known as the Nagid in Hebrew, his son, grandson, great-grandson were all Negidim. They were all leaders of the Cairo community. His great, great, great-grandson, David, uh, moved to Aleppo in 1375. We think that he took the Codex with him to Aleppo in Syria. So it's the Rambam's descendants who moved to Syria, to specifically Aleppo, Halab, um, and he brings the codex with him, and there um, it is uh, believed that it was uh, it was that's when it got there. Sometime in the 14th century, around 1375, it is believed that the uh, and that and so once it got to Aleppo, that's when it became known as the Aleppo Codex. Uh, the Aleppo community put it in the great synagogue of Aleppo, Halab, Aram Soba. 
Uh, it was in a very a locked safe. Uh, it was guarded very, very tenaciously. Very, very. Uh, uh, there were there were there were curses written uh, for anyone who would touch it. Look, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They were very, very careful about this and access to it very restricted. But it became the it literally the crown of the community, or as they were proud of this. They were the preservers of this, the protectors of this, and it was a matter of communal pride that they had this codex. And hence it became known as the, from that time on, the the Taj Aram Sova, the Aleppo, Code, Aleppo Codex. When when did the um, biblical scholar um, Umberto Casuto inspect the codex, and what is his claim regarding it? So there is a, a, an Italian... Uh, scholar by the name of Umberto Casuto. Uh, I love his name. Just like, how often do you get a scholar called Umberto? I mean, so Umberto Casuto um, was uh, in Israel. He actually was allowed to um, examine the codex um, in the uh, early part of the, in the, I think it was the 1930s, perhaps. I don't remember. Or 20s. Um, He was not allowed to take photos of it. He has a letter he writes in which he says, I could not take photos. The people in Aleppo said, if I take photos of it, all the curses will fall upon me and them. But he was able to look at it and examine it um, and um, and and, and uh, draw some conclusions about it. We don't have the full text of his of his conclusions, but uh, Umberkus, uh, who have, he eventually moved to Jerusalem, became a professor at Hebrew University. You might know that there's a street in Beit Vagan, Rukhov Kasuto, uh, he wrote a very famous book, the uh, eight lectures on the documentary hypothesis and a commentary on the Torah. Wonderful scholar. He was of the opinion that the Aleppo Codex at the Rambam, or that rather the Codex that the Rambam saw and writes about in the Mishnah Torah was not the Aleppo Codex. The basis for him saying that was, we don't know all of his reasoning, but one reason we do know is that the Rambam says that the um, that the uh, Shirat Hazinu, the Song of Hazinu, should be written as seventy lines, and he says if you look in the Aleppo Codex, it's written in sixty-seven lines. He says so can't be. Now, the uh, there are those who disagree. I mean, f- first of all. Um, the, the the descriptions of the Aleppo Codex from various people throughout history match the descriptions of people in Cairo. Um, the journey of the Aleppo Codex matches exactly that it should be in Cairo at the time of the Rambam. Much of the evidence points towards it being that, that what the Rambam saw was the Aleppo Codex. What do you do with the 70 and 67? There are scholars who point out that in one of the oldest manuscripts, of uh, of the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam, and there are many, many manuscripts. But if you look in one of the oldest manuscripts, uh, it, it was uh, um, I forgot from where, but the but there that manuscript, it's the um, Ox, it's in Bodleian Library in Oxford. It's it's the Huntington eighty manuscript of the Rambam. It, it, I never saw that in Yeshiva, but it's in the Oxford, uh, and and there uh, it, it says sixty seven lines. Uh-huh. So. Uh, maybe I don't know that, yeah, but but Kasuto was un, was was uncertain if this was the one. Most other scholars disagree, and uh, it does seem that this was the uh, that what the Rambam saw was indeed the Aleppo Codex. 
And now we're moving a little further in history. The state of Israel is about to emerge and events are warming up in, in, in Syria and Aleppo. What happened to the Codex during the anti-Jewish riots in Aleppo of 1947? Right. So, so the, as we know, the Syrian government uh, encouraged riots against the Jews, not that the population needed a lot of encouragement. And the riots were, uh, took the form of burning down the great synagogue. There were many Jews beaten. There were many Jews, there were many of the uh, rapes and uh, some people died during this. And it was uh, horrific. So knowing that the Codex, this most treasured piece uh, piece of uh, Jewish history, was in the a lot of the Syrian Jews took great pains to try and save it from the from the fire. So it was saved. Uh, we think it was Murad and Sarina Faham. We're not exactly sure that many Syrian Jews claimed to have been the ones to save it. Whether it was the Gabai, whether it was probably a group effort. And it was taken out of the shul. It looks like, it appears that what we have of it is, I think, about 60% in the form that we have now. But but uh, people took pages of it. People took a uh, hid page. It doesn't seem to have been burnt. It used to be believed that, it got, that a lot of it got burnt. Um, however, uh, on investigation, um, one of the scholars... Uh, at the um, in Israel, when it eventually got there, found that what was thought to be burn marks was actually a fungus that had uh, infested the, uh, the the. So so basically, what happened at this point was that um, Yitzhak Ben Svi, who was the second president of the state of Israel, was also a historian. Now there was a unit. Um, there was a unit in the Israeli intelligence called Unit 504, Intelligence Unit 504. And they were responsible for intelligence activities amongst Jewish communities in the diaspora. It was a bit of a weird, you know, weird job, but that was their, that was their, their, their role. Now they were the people, by the way, who were able to obtain a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so uh, Sami Nachmias and uh, uh, Shmuel Goren, who was the commander of this of the military intelligence fighter before. So Yitzhak Ben Svi knew about the Aleppo Codex, and he knew that the Syrian Jews had hid it um, after these riots. And he tasked the Mossad. Mossad's interesting. It's like it's a here you have an intelligence unit, but they do things that are. A little weird. They're looking for a kidnapped kid. In the case of Yossela, they'll hunt down Nazis. Uh, they'll take you know revenge against the Munich uh, terrorists, etc. You know, it's not a, it just intelligence gathering. And one of the things that they were tasked with doing was getting the Aleppo Codex back. So um, an, a, a number of Syrian Jews helped the Mossad, um, and um, so someone by the name of Rafi Sutton, who Sutton is a very famous. Syrian Jewish name, and a number of the Syrian Jews helped. It was eventually smuggled out of Syria, I, I think via Iran, uh, which at the time was under the Shah, um, from Iran to Turkey, and then Turkey eventually to Israel, where unfortunately initially was not treated well. It was uh, placed in a filing cabinet. I mean, I don't know, is this because of Israeli bureaucracy? or I have no idea, but it ends up 
in a filing cabinet. Eventually, it was moved to what they call the Yad Ben Svi, and um, it was uh, they started to really uh, do a lot of preservation. There was, there's a Michael Magen, who is the head of the Paper Conservation Lab at the Israel Museum, and he did uh, a lot of preservation work on the Codex. Uh, but we also, because a lot of it was missing, we had to resort to other ways to to figure out the missing stuff. So first of all, over the course since the 1950s, when it was taken to Israel until now, pages have cropped up. Syrian Jews have found pages here and there that, and, and given it to to Israel, uh, to the Yad Ben Svi, and to the Israel. Now it's in the Israel Museum, Shrine of the Book, and so more and more of it has got together. But we have some other important sources. First of all, there are the notes of of Umberto Casuto, who did examine it. And there's a fascinating story. There was a Rosholom Shachna Yellen in the ninth, late 19th century, who was a soifer, a scribe from Vilna, and uh, not Vilna, but from Lithuania. And he wanted to, you know, one of his life's goals was to make Aliyah. And also he wanted to see the, the uh, Aleppo Codex. So he did get to make Aliyah, but he became ill and he could not go to Aleppo to see it. In the, so he sent his son-in-law and his son-in-law took his father-in-law's Tanakh and went there and took notes on the entire Tanakh of the Aleppo Codex, the Masora, the, the, the various spellings, word, word changes, uh, different, etc., etc. That That actually got lost. That Tanakh was lost until sometime in the, I think it was the 70s. So Roshon Sahia had lived in Kiryat Moshe. I used to live there and um, and uh, they were demolishing an apartment building, in which he lived. And they were ch- they, they found a boydom. It's like a sealed uh, in Israeli apartments. You have a space sometimes between the, 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 the ceiling and the roof. And you can use that to store things in. Um, uh, so anyway, they found the Tanakh. And that was given to Yad Yitzhak Ben Svi. And so we had sources of that sort throughout history. There were also questions that were sent to the people in Aleppo, uh, someone, I forgot who it was, sent a list of questions about different spellings and words, and they would uh, they would be able to answer yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So all these sources, you know, came together and were used in uh, actually the Hebrew University, based on the Aleppo Codex and some of these other sources, produced what they call Keter Yerushalayim, which is a wonderful Tanakh that is based primarily on the Aleppo Codex, but also uses the notes of Rav Shachna Yellen and used some of the work of Kasuto and other sources to put together this uh, uh, reconstruction of that uh, of that original uh, Codex. Does that does the reconstruction, if, if we if the Aleppo Codex that was extant from the um, the riots in forty seven that came to Israel in fifty eight, if we're talking about sixty percent, yeah. Of the codex, did the reconstruction move that number up from sixty to a higher number? And where are we today in that? I, I don't know the exact percentage, but it did move it up. Yeah, I, I can't tell you an exact percentage, but but pages have been recovered, have been donated, um, uh, and 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 uh, it's it. See, when you have let's say notes in someone's Tanakh, that's not going to move the percentage up, but nevertheless. It will tell you what was the codex's uh, 
version of this letter, this word, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So does that move the percentage up? Could be. But uh, so I, I can't give you a percentage, but it was it was moved. It, it has been has been moved up. Uh, another uh, aid in it was using the other famous codex from Tiberius, which is known as the Leningrad Codex, um, which is from also from early 11th century, dated back to 1009. Um, it's called Leningrad Codex because. Although it was written in Cairo, it was originally from in Cairo, but it stayed in Egypt for hundreds of years, and then turned up in Russia in the 19th century, um, uh, bought by a Karite, wealthy Karite businessman, and uh, of course Leningrad. Um, it was in Leningrad, but once Russia became the Soviet Union, and everything was nationalized, so was this. And uh, it is now in St. Petersburg in the National Library, but it still has, it does not call the St. Petersburg Codex, even though Leningrad is now called St. Petersburg. It's still called the Leningrad Codex. And that also has um, complete Bible written in, 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 on the colophon. It says it was written by Shmuel Ben Yaakov in 10, 000, uh, 1009 CE, uh, written and finished with Nikud, meaning vowelization, beautifully proofread in Egypt, in the month of Sivan, 4,770th year of creation. So uh, because we have the colophon, and it's actually more, it's it's intact. It's not unlike the Aleppo Codex. It didn't go through riots. There doesn't seem to be damaged by fungus. Uh, pages are not missing. So it actually is very helpful uh, in that sense. And it was also used by the uh, Hebrew University in that uh, Keter Yerushalayim Tanakh. We had uh, interviewed a while back uh, Professor Lauren Schiffman on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And two of the things that, that he had mentioned was, number one, was that, um, first of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls over the years became available to the general public. And everything is online now, and the general public really has access for the first time to the Dead Sea Scrolls. He also said that um, there's a lot of, potential future research uh, in canal uh, in analysis uh, using all kinds of new technologies is, is there anything that's is there something similar happening with the Aleppo codex like the Dead Sea Scrolls not to the same degree um it's much more recent I mean the Dead Sea Scrolls we're talking about 2100 200 years ago uh and um uh also much more controversial in its content uh, in terms of its, what it says about early Christianity, what it says about Jewish sectarianism, uh, what it says about authenticity of various biblical traditions and the Tehillim and so on and so forth. So I guess people have found it much more interesting than whether this word is spelled with a vav or a yud, right, or whether the cantillation is a mercha or a tipcha, I guess less interesting to people and less mind less less controversial uh less momentous um but nevertheless work is still being done on it uh there is still scholarship being done um there are uh you know there there is analysis being done on its ink as i, I said there's uh, hebrew uh, israel museum sorry is primarily involved in that and it is also being you know it is used uh in a scholarly way to to help publish Matt, you know, uh, new versions of the uh, or versions of the Tanakh, which are which are accurate and uh, which uh, involve the uh, cantillation and valorization of them. And there's interest in the Masora, the Masora Magna, the Masora uh, Parva, the various notes they have 
that actually have been reprinted um, in, I forgot who did it, but there is, like, maybe it was not Coran, but the, it has been reprinted in a new modern version of that. Yeah. Um, why should young people, um, general, general, general public of young people and perhaps young people that come from a traditional background, why should they study the Aleppo Codex and its history? Good question. I, I, I would think that, first of all, um, the uh, the Aleppo Codex, to some degree, almost parallels a lot of our own personal Jewish history. Here is something which originates in Israel, which is captured by crusaders. If you're talking about a human being, this could be the story of a Jew, right? Created in Tiberias, captured by crusaders in Jerusalem, ransomed by Jews in Cairo, moved from Cairo to Aleppo, Syria, spirited by the Mossad, attacked by anti-Semites, spirited by the Mossad back to the state of, to the state of Israel. It's, it's, it's a, first of all, an intriguing story in and of itself. It's a story, I think, that parallels a lot of the Jewish people, right? We all originated in Israel as, uh, you know, uh, our, our soul came from Israel, uh, but where did it go? Who was it captured by? How was it redeemed? Where did it end up? So to some degree, I think study of the Aleppo Codex is really study of our own personal histories. And and it, it does, uh, it does uh, present fascinating insights into different Jewish communities. Tiberius, which today is this is is a is a commercial and tourist center you go there to 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 go swimming in the canary but people don't realize that tiberius tiberia was one of the great torah centers of our of our history so it gives you a new appreciation of some aspects of the land of israel um the the, the recognition of the fascination of the karaites and the talmud uh, of the rabbinites with the aleppo codex again if you are interested in Chumash, if you're interested in Torah this is something of interest in general. The fact that it that it is seen and discussed by the Rambam is uh, is is uh, just amazing that uh, and that his great 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 grandson takes it to Aleppo. So I think there's a lot of uh, I think that's a fascinating story in and of itself. Uh, and the Fostak community is a fascinating community. Um, then the Aleppo community, there is a large Syrian community today in Israel, in uh, New York, in Deal, uh, and uh, this is part of their heritage. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of young people have only heard of Aleppo in the context of the uh, of wars in Syria. Uh, I think to think of Aleppo as one of the great uh, Jewish communities of the world with scholars and preserving. I mean, can you think about the fact that here is this thing comes there in the 14th century and is there for until 1947 and then in hiding until 1958 and and now it's in the state of Israel. I mean, that in and of itself, that longevity of the preservation and the degree of veneration for it is also interesting and, you know, uh, something to think about in terms of the Aleppo community. And then it's current. The, I, I find it interesting that the that here is a sovereign state that's just got enough, not like the state of Israel didn't have enough problems in 1958, right? That 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 the president is worried about getting some obscure book from a city in Aleppo, which uh, you know some Syrian family has has hidden, is uh, 
when 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 the Quran calls us Al Al Kitab, the people of the book, um, this is this is a classic example. That's not what the Quran meant, but here is a great example: the Jewish passion for the book and for the Torah, and as expressed in this book, really says something. And uh, I I you know I tell I tell students that you know there's a poem by Heinrich Heine. Uh, German poet, born Jewish, unfortunately tragically baptized, but but insightful. He writes that the Torah is the portable homeland of the Jewish people, uh, and he's so correct. Uh, Jews moving around Tveria, Yerushalayim, Fostat, Cairo, uh, you know Aleppo, Iran, Turkey, Israel. That whole movement. That's what the one constant in Jewish geography. The one constant in Jewish history is the book, the Torah. And the Aleppo Codex, I think, represents that in, 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 in an amazing and beautiful way. And uh, so that's why I would probably encourage people to to look into it, to read about it. There are various books about it, but, you know. Excellent. Okay. This has been absolutely fascinating. I, I know we could go on and on, and there's so much more to say, but I think we got a, an excellent taste of the Aleppo Codex and uh, urge all our listeners and viewers to explore it more and to check out, of course, Rabbi Becker's books and his ongoing lectures that are online on many different platforms. Rabbi Becker, thank you so much for your today's most appreciated. Thank you for having me. Cold to bye-bye.